You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Tuesday, November the 30th, bright and early here in a frosty TW11. And much of what we discussed yesterday has just moved on half a pace. We will be bringing you up to speed with the first day of the Freddie Tulitsky graham Gibbons case, news from the High Court. Dan Skelton and those allegations that were made against him in the pages of the Sunday Times, he's offered a fairly stern rejoinder to those, more of which in a few moments' time. Around the world with our friends at Weatherby's in our bloodstock slot this week, we head to Spain for the first time. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. We bring you details of the boutique sale that is taking place run by Goffs at Yorton this week and cast our eye over what is a really, truly stellar entry for some of the jumps cards in Great Britain at the weekend. But first of all, today is the first day that has been set aside for the hearing into charges of bullying and harassment that have been laid at the feet of jockey Robbie Dunn. And we know from what we've already read that the alleged recipient of such harassment and bullying was fellow rider Bryony Frost. David Yates is with me. David, all gets underway today at about 10 to 10 at the British Horse Racing Authority. Reporting is allowed on this only in the breaks. So uh, the press can watch via Zoom, but can only report on the breaks. So there's no live reporting on this. What's at stake for the um, participants in this case and indeed for the regulator and the sport as a whole? Right. Well, I think we can look at this in, in four different ways, Nick. For Robbie Dunn, let's deal with him first. He's 36. He's charged with three counts of alleged abusive or threatening behaviour. Now, the, the punishment for that, uh, should he be found guilty, ranges up to a fine of £15,000 or a, a, a ban from the sport of three years. Now, Robbie Dunn is 36. If we take that to its, its extreme and say a three-year ban that would take him to 39, what we're talking about in the case of Robbie Dunn, I think in the worst case scenario is effectively the end of his career. For Bryony Frost, well, you would expect in this case that the, the downside for the defendant is, is a lot deeper uh, than it would be for the plaintiff. I don't think anyone has suggested in this case that the, the case was brought about by motives that, were, that are vexatious or frivolous. I think that uh, what Bryony Frost said in the aftermath of her win on Frodon in the, the King George VI chase last Christmas, uh, when all this came out into the open, she said that she wanted to change the culture uh, for the generation that followed hers or, or for the younger generation. And obviously, if the case doesn't succeed, well, you can make your own judgment as to whether uh, that culture is indeed going to change. For the BHA, uh, the third party that we're considering here, it's, it's competence and how fit it is to govern racing and how it's dealt with this case will also be held up to the light. 
there there's there have been the the leaks to the sunday times the, the the process itself has taken a very long time and finally for racing itself racing makes a uh, has quite rightly made much uh, capital out of the fact that men and women in the sport compete on equal terms once again it rightly points out to the progress that it feels has been made in leveling up what i think we would all agree uh, was a very unlevel playing field uh, to start off with. It's not just people who are interested in racing uh, who are looking at this case. And again, it, it's, it's, it's very likely that were this case to show that there, is a, a, that there has been bullying in this case and perhaps that there is a, a culture of bullying in uh, the weighing room, that for horse racing, all the work that it's tried to do uh, to level up between the, the, the genders over the last decade or so, it would be seen, I think, publicly that a, a lot of that work had either been undone or, or had fallen a long way short. It's a very serious case for all the reasons you've articulated. It's also quite an odd case in certain respects, in part because of that leak and You've made the point on the podcast before that the BHA had to refer itself unless that leak had come from within. Also because the senior investigating officer in this case was a, a man, Chris Watts, who no longer works for the BHA and left in slightly mysterious circumstances. Charlie Brooks in his Daily Telegraph column made reference to a few issues that may have contributed to Watts' departure. Now there was a swift an uncharacteristically front foot rejoinder from the BHA seeking very much to restore and or preserve their reputation right in advance of this case, which I thought was quite interesting today. Yeah, it, it is interesting because as you and I know that in, in many cases, when one contacts uh, the BHA with, for a comment on a specific case or a specific incident, uh, you don't get very far. You you just get a a brick wall in front of you saying, "Well, we we don't comment on uh, specific reports or indeed rumours." Uh, many is the time that uh, that I've sought a, a comment and have been unsuccessful. And so, as you say, it's interesting. This is a um, a claim in today's Daily Telegraph by Charlie Brooks that that Chris Watts went on uh, an Ollie Reed. Uh, style bender and the, the the BHA were quick to deny this and and to do so in unequivocal terms so that itself is rare the the issue of, of Chris Watts is certainly interesting in the context of this case um, he was the the head of integrity uh, it, he, he compiled the case the BHA case against Robbie Dunn uh, that was leaked to David Walsh in the Sunday Times. And as you say, his departure, well, the, the, the waters surrounding that, they were muddy at the time and they're no clearer now, are they? I mean, it, it, to use the, uh, the, the tabloid phrase, whether he left under a cloud or not, I think perhaps he's overdoing it, but it's certainly true to say uh, that mystery surrounds his departure. We haven't had anything uh, clear from the, the, the BHA as, as to why he left at the time and, and left abruptly. But clearly the BHA, whether or not he left abruptly, whether or not he left under a cloud, clearly it's very important for the authority at the moment that's bringing this case 
against Robbie Dunn to shore up its own reputation and to shore up the notion that what was carried out in this case was done properly, irrespective of, of how Chris Watts' relationship with the BHA may have ended. Let's talk about a case that's already begun, Dave, and that's the case that's taken place in the High Court today and is set to continue for another four days yet. And, and that is the uh, claim lodged by Freddie Talitsky, who was paralysed from the waist down in a fall at Kempton in 2016, uh, against Graham Gibbons, his fellow rider who rode in the same race, and that Gibbons was professionally negligent. And uh, Talitsky is seeking damages to the tune of £6 million. What happened in court today? Right, we, we had contributions from both Lord Edward Falks QC representing Freddie Talitsky and also Patrick Lawrence QC representing Graham Gibbons. Uh, Lord Falks said that the manoeuvre uh, by Graham Gibbons uh, on Madam Butterfly, this was in the, the, the one-mile uh, maiden race on the 31st of October 2016 at Kempton Park. He said that that manoeuvre, as the horses left the back straight to go into the right-handed bend, was negligent and contrary to the rules of racing. He accepted that uh, Gibbons' manoeuvre was not deliberately to injure, was made not deliberately to injure uh, Freddie Talitsky, but that Gibbons had ridden without any due regard for the consequences of his manoeuvre. And it represented a degree of carelessness over several seconds of riding that was either deliberate, they accepted it wasn't deliberate, or, and this is what they contend, was sufficiently careless to meet the test of professional negligence and therefore uh, trigger the award of the damages of over six million pounds. Patrick Lawrence's contribution was twofold really. Uh, to start off with, he made a, a policy argument and that was really to say that horse racing is a highly competitive and dangerous sport, that the decisions made by the jockeys uh, were split second decisions where, uh, which led to incidents of interference uh, which were commonplace. It, essentially, the policy argument he was making that if a case such as this uh, were to succeed, then it would trigger uh, multiple litigation uh, from lawyers and, and it, it would have ramifications that were way beyond, essentially, the the details of this case. That was the policy argument. He also said when he was... Uh, cross-examining Freddie Talitsky. They went through the incident. I think it was, it was played uh, from five different angles. Uh, the, uh, Freddie Talitsky said that he had made a, uh, I think it was a, a, a shout for survival of Gibbo when um, Graham Gibbons had moved away from the rail, had created a gap which Freddie Talitsky had gone into uh, aboard Nelly Dean and then Graham Gibbons had uh, closed this gap. Um, Patrick Lawrence said that in the uh, in the stewards' room, Pat Cosgrave had described the move made by Freddie Talitsky to fill that gap as ambitious. He used the word bold and basically had made the point that it was not uh, Graham Gibbons' negligence, but that it was the ambitious, or as he put it, the bold. Uh, manoeuvre by Freddie Talitsky aboard Nelly Dean that had led to the incident which of course uh, saw four jockeys 
hit the ground and, and led, of course, to those life-changing injuries for Freddie Tulitsky. Uh, just throwing it forward briefly, Lord Falk said that Pat Cosgrave would produce evidence during this case that would contrast uh, with what he'd said to the stewards. We're also looking forward to uh, a contribution from Ryan Moore, which, uh, according to the uh, the case notes, uh, describe the manoeuvre by Graham Gibbons as dangerous. Charlie Lane, the steward and former amateur rider, uh, will appear for Graham Gibbons and will say that uh, had he been acting as a steward on the day at Kempton Park, he would have seen the interference as accidental. Ryan Moore's evidence could yet prove crucial here. What's your general feeling about how the law looks upon decisions made by sporting bodies and their regulator? Right. I mean, there is, there is absolutely no doubt that uh, the judiciary generally are loath to get involved in cases like this, uh, not just in horse racing, but when you're talking about uh, negligence when it comes to uh, tackles in football or rugby, they don't like to get involved because they accept that their level of expertise is a lot more, uh, than the regulator's of those sports and so just as a general rule and and I think that goes in multiples for horse racing because we all know uh, what a difficult uh, sport it is uh, to understand so yeah my own view looking at it over the last few years and decades of, of the way that the judiciary treats cases like this they're generally reluctant to get involved whether Judge Karen Walden-Smith will choose to do that. Well, we'll see over the next few days. But certainly, I think the precedent, as I say, not just in horse racing, but other sports, is that they tend to leave it to the regulators. Uh, Moving on, and you'll remember yesterday, we touched on the case involving Dan Skelton and one of his former owners, Tony Holt, who ran a syndicate that was very unhappy with the sale of a horse to them called George Gently back in the early months of 2018. Uh, He's released a statement, Dan Skelton, the man who's currently second in the British National Hunt Trainers Championship. He said that he'd give full cooperation and assistance to any new BHA investigation. Uh, He also says that the owner has subjected him to a campaign for more than three years as he responded to that story in the Sunday Times by David Walsh. Skelton said, Mr. Holt embarked on a campaign against me in relation to his purchase of George Gently some time ago. That began in mid-2018 when he made a complaint against me to the BHA. The BHA carefully and properly investigated that complaint and I gave them my full cooperation. The BHA, on completion of its investigation, concluded that no further action should be taken. Mr. Holt, over the next two years, then made a number of threats of legal action before raising a further complaint with the BHA concerning the same horse. I've offered my full cooperation and assistance to the BHA. And um, a spokesman for the syndicate said Mr. Holt and his fellow syndicate members instigated a complaint against Mr. Skelton following David Futter's disclosure of Mr. Skelton's interest in the horse George Gently. The BHA reopened the case against Mr. Skelton following the presentation of additional new evidence and this investigation still continues. And I reiterate that I contacted the BHA about this and they said they declined to comment uh, while correspondence was still progressing. Uh, Dan Skelton will be hoping to put this behind him swiftly, Dave, I'm sure. And uh, with that, he'll be hoping to clean up most of the big races this weekend in which he has representatives. Third time lucky in the Henry VIII. Newby Negra, second favourite at the moment to Chacan Poursois in the Tingle Creek Protectorat in the Many Clouds Chase at Aintree and All Mankind in the Fitzdares Peterborough Chase at uh, Huntingdon on Sunday. 
yeah, it's it's quite rare, isn't it, for a weekend for a, a to be so important for a top stable as you say, uh, Protectorat that fast finishing second carrying the Newsboy Nap in the uh, Paddy Power Gold Cup. All mankind looked uh, a more tractable horse, I thought, when he run when he won the old Roan Chase at Aintree. Third time lucky. Is it fair to describe him as the clubhouse leader uh, thus far for the Arkle with those two victories at Cheltenham? And the final one, of course, is Nubenegra. Unlucky when second in the Queen Mother Champion Chase at Cheltenham last March and was a fluent winner of the Slur Chase. So it, even for a, a stable of, of Dan Skelton's might, those four horses, they really are the, uh, the, the, the four the four best horses in the yard, aren't they? You would, you would say certainly over fences. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it marks a, an extremely important weekend for, for a trainer who still denies that um, he's going to be a challenger at the end of the season for um, the trainers championship. And I suppose this weekend and how those four horses get on will tell us quite a bit more. Yeah, and rather more critical denials in this morning's paper. Uh, it, talking of the uh, Unibet Many Clouds chase at entry on Sunday, a couple of horses in there that immediately knock your eye out. One is the Jewel Gold Cup winner album photo. Willie Mullins tinkering with that as an option. And, and the other is the much-awaited return of, of Champ um, for, for Nicky Henderson after back surgery. So it would be good if either or both of those roll, rolled up. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, how Champ comes out on the... Uh, the other side of that surgery to his spine. Obviously, the the, um, the Cheltenham Gold Cup last year fell apart in the space of about 30 seconds for Nicky Henderson. They clearly had very high hopes for Champ. The only comfort I think they could really take from uh, that disappointing performance was that it was too bad to be true. So we'll see how he gets on with album photo. Well, considering that that horse hasn't run yet because of uh, a lack of rainfall. I suppose we'll have to see what conditions like at Aintree this weekend. But I, I would have thought as things stand, maybe they would need a, a bit more rain for Album Photo to take his chance there. Obviously, it, he's, he's, in a, it, he's, he's attempting to do something that has never been done before, isn't he? Corto uh, Star got his Gold Cup back, but no horse has won the Gold Cup twice, then lost it and regained it. So that really would be some feat. And maybe he will start the ball rolling this weekend at Aintree. There's something happening on the west coast of the United States of America at the moment, and it's a, a resurgence, a renaissance of one of the most talented riders uh, the world has seen in the modern generation. Ken DeZormo is absolutely flying, and he's on the line now. Ken, what's happening? How's it going? Why has it happened? Uh, well, I think everyone knows the effort I'm putting in. I think it's, um, I think it's uh, the resurgence has come from confidence. And um, everyone knows my due diligence. So um, I I think my efforts are being rewarded. All right. So just tell me, just rewind a little bit and tell me how you've got yourself back on track and what the numbers are looking like. Well, um, you know, there's new people giving, well, there's, there's, there's my same old friends that are resurging their confidence in me, uh, resurrecting it. And um, I feel like, uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm not failing, and and I feel like I think that's the difference between a good rider and a great rider. Um, you know, lots of guys get opportunities, and they, they you know, they, 
the, the fruit doesn't come. But I've 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 been a, a writer that has been fortunate enough to uh, not fail when given an opportunity. And yeah. I think I think that's the difference. I, th- I really do. And and with the opportunities that I've been granted, uh, I've I've been able to create some success. And it's it's re it's uh it's you know it's 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 snowballing. I mean, you're someone who's been writing now for, you know, over three decades, you're roughly the same amount of time as, as say, Frankie Dottori here. You were born, I think, the same year, 1970. I mean, Ken, we've talked before, you've had your well-documented issues with, with alcoholism um, and you're, you're in a good place right now. You've won so many big races. You've won classics. You've won Breeders' Cups. Are people suddenly starting to remember who Ken Desormo is? Do they think, well, here's somebody who's been in hiding in plain sight? None of that means anything. What have you done for me lately, business? And I think that, uh, you know, it, um, when, 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 you, when you're involved in alcoholism, it's a very visual thing. People see your face and they know where you've been. And when you show up fresh and sassy every day, um, you know, that's... Um, it's very obvious, and I obviously am very busy now, and Mr. Erton, Peter, is screaming at me to jump on his horse. I must go. <laughs> um, it's great to have you back. I'm, I'm glad that it, things are going so well for you. you. You mentioned last time we spoke that there was a target you had. You had one number target in your head in terms of how many right, wins you could manage. What was that? Re- remind me. Uh, it's 63-84. I have to pass Eddie De La Husse. Uh I'll be here until that happens. And you're currently on what? Um, 63. So you just need a what? Another another 84 winners? That's about right. That's about the number. All right, Nick, good morning, and thank you for having me. The extraordinary talent of Kent DeZormo, who is back with a bang on the West Coast at 51 years of age and certainly not resting on past glories. Well, we all know, and much has been discussed, about the increasing importance and influence of the boutique sales particularly for jumps horses during the course of the year many of those featuring horses that have shown excellent form in irish point to points the most influential sale of recent times it seems has been the goffs sale held at yorton farm near welsh blood stock manager george stanners um, who until very recently was a director of goffs uk as well joins me on the line now uh, george just give us an indication as to the sort of recent pedigree of uh, of this sale and these sales as we know for the last number of years point-to-point sales boutique sales traditionally after racing at festivals um entry and and, and so on ha- have worked well for recent performers so Horses that have performed the, the, the weekend uh, previous or, or two or three weekends prior to the sale, um, they've really grown in stature and the, and the results in the race course have, have proved that it is a good way of doing things. So we've, um, through COVID, we plan to have a sale elsewhere. That couldn't happen. So we moved to, to Yorton and yeah, we had a couple sales in November and December at Yorton where Goffs already had a few sales, so when COVID struck, we had no option. We moved the sale to the point of point sale to Yorton in November and December. It went very, very well. We sold some brilliant horses that have gone on to, to, do, to do great things, really, and sold a tremendous amount of, of winners, illustrated obviously by John Bond the other day, who you know commanded uh, 
you know, a strong sales price, but he's a full brother to Duvan. He was entitled to, you know, to make a good price. You know, it was beyond anybody's dreams at the time, but he's a tremendously exciting horse going forward. So, look, they work. We were asked to do another sale again. So, yeah, we've got a sale here on Thursday. Small catalogue, 20-odd horses. It's a select sale. Four- and five-year-old winners, placed horses. You know, we've added a few wild cards into the sale today. Uh, there's a Blue Brazil, which was actually bred and, and, and sourced at Yorton by his vendor on Thursday, Paul Cashman, who actually bought Blue Brazil, the stallion himself, um, the great Cashman family, uh, Ruth Barry and Glenview Studs. So Paul's going to bring that horse across. He won on Sunday. He's going to bring him across. And there's also another horse. He's a master stroke who's a, a young stallion that stands here at Yorton. He won first him out for a good young trainer in France, Hugo Marianne, a three-year-old hurdle in, uh, across in France. He is, as we speak, I think, on a ferry heading across to the um, the UK shores. So there's lots of excitement uh, brewing. Uh, a lot of horses are travelling across you know, overnight in the next couple of days. Uh, vetting on the Wednesday, sale on the Thursday. Um, and yet, yeah, there's no doubt we fully expect there to be some strong graduates coming out of the sale over the next couple of years. George Stanners there, who will be supervising horses going under the hammer at the venue which brought you Ahoy Senor and John Barn. Well, it is Tuesday, so we go around the bloodstock world here on this podcast with our friends at Weatherby's and their Global Stallion app and their recently published Stallion book. And I'm very pleased to say that we are making a first visit to Spain, where I'm checking in with Jose Ormaita from uh, Yeguada Arduaro, which has just been renamed, was formerly Torre Duero, uh, one of the most important stud farms in Spain. Jose, thanks so much for, for talking to me and, and welcome the, the first uh, Spanish stud that we've featured on this on this segment. And, and you'd be in a, a good position to tell me just the strength of, of Spanish bloodstock at the moment. Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, the Spanish bloodstock is uh, very small, minimal. But uh, I said the quality is better than the than the than the level than the amount of uh, horses we have. So you're punching above your weight. You've got some some very interesting stallions, which we'll talk about in a little while. But I I wanted to know a little bit about the history of of your stud and and how how you came by it. We went to England uh, just after finishing college, and we spent uh, 16 years in Newmarket trying to learn the trade, and that was a great experience anyway. So we decided with another partner called Felipe Nojosa, which used to own Sevington Stud in, in Newmarket, we decided to set up a big farm in Spain, and we did. We went to Milagro, which was in the north of Spain, and we set up a farm of about 750 acres with stallions and a lot of mares and trying to develop Spanish racing. Also, at the time, La Zarzuela was reopening after nine years closed. So it was a, an exciting moment and we decided to come back and, and try to improve the, the Spanish breeding. We were there for about seven years. We stood horses like Kardak or Diktat. Uh, Pyrus stood there as well, and things went well till we split up, as uh, as it happens in Spain very often. <laughs> <laughs> and and then I went on my own, and then I moved to Torredero, which it was a which it was a stud farm in Spain since the seventies. So we're well, happy to go there and try to redevelop the farm and 
get it back to what it was one time, you know. That's more or less the history. And you said that Las Vazuela had reopened. That is a one of the three major the race courses in in Spain. The others being San Sebastian and, and Seville. So you're not too yes. far from not too far from from Madrid it, itself, and and a very important centre for for sales as well. I mean, how how is the sales scene at the moment in in Spain, and and how much are you contributing to that? The sales in Spain are very small. You know. Uh, Comparing with uh, with any big country in Europe or or in the world, this year we sold I think it was seventy five yearlings in total. We took thirty two to the sale. Um, the biggest year, which it was probably two thousand and eight, nine, ten, we used to sell one hundred twenty, one hundred thirty. But uh, after the pandemic and all that, well, we we're stable now around seventy five yearlings. But still, a, still a pretty significant number. Now you talked about Caradac and Caradac's uh, most prominent son, and arguably his best son, Nuzo Canarias, who we know here because he acquitted himself very creditably in the UK yeah. on on more than one occasion. He was third in the Group One Prix de la Forêt as well, third in the Jean Luc Lagardère. Uh, he's he's had his first runners this year. How's he done? Well, he's done pretty well. He had a small crop. Because of a EHP abortion storm that we had that year, so we only had 13 light faults, right? Of them, nine ran, four won, and the other five were placed. So, so it's actually beaten the the record for a two-year-old side in Spain, which is a very good start. You know? uh, the second crop is uh, a little bit better in quantity and quality. So, so we hope. Uh, we hope he'll improve those numbers. He seems to to pass on the precocity onto his progeny, and uh, he's done what he what he was meant to do. So, so it's a good start, anyway. And, and he's been one of the the most famous sort of exports or temporary exports from Spain in in recent years. But there've been plenty of others, uh, Jose. You know, we Royal Gate we remember very well came from Spain. Equiano, who's been a a wonderfully and, yeah. and rather underrated stallion uh, over the yeah, years as well. It, it was a it was a great export, yeah. And uh, lately there is a there is Chaser, which is very odd, but uh, Nubenetra is uh, mm. is uh, quite an amazing horse now. You know, hopefully he'll do something on Saturday. Nubenegra, of course, running this weekend in the in the Tingle Creek Chase. He's he's by a sire called Dink, who's by by Polyglot and Dink. We've now inherited as well. Dink uh, started uh, well, he raced in Spain. He started breeding in Spain and. Uh, He's developed into a decent jump sire, so he's gone to England now. So you're covering all the bases. In addition to Nuzo Canarias, you're also standing uh, first eleven. We um, we were looking for a for a horse to cover Caradac Mers, you know, and uh, I thought first eleven was ideal for that. Uh, belonging to Abdullah, I knew if he didn't come up to a scratch, they were going to sell him at some stage. So mm. so I got in touch with them and they sold it to us. Uh, Frankel is uh, is uh, is doing every year better. So so hopefully, first eleven is uh, is a good addition to the Spanish Blaster. You, know? you can't you can't you can't go too far wrong here, Jose. By Frankel, half brother to Kingman. Exactly. Yeah, he's got a uh, thirty falls on the ground and thirty five mercy falls. So so we're very hopeful with him. And Jose, are you optimistic for the for the future of horse racing in in Spain? We've had a couple of uh, tough years, but it looks like we've been able to handle them. So hopefully, we'll go back into recovery now. You know? 
it was very good up to 2019. Then the pandemic hit us badly, but but it seems to be recovering now. So so we're hopeful anyway. I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. Thanks so much for talking to me. Brilliant. My thanks to Jose and uh, before that to Ken DeZormo and to George Stanners. David Yates is still with me and has a tip for you for today. Right, well, I'm going to start in the 11.40 race at Lingfield, Nick, the two-mile handicap, and it's number 13, Owen Little. This horse beat the reopposing Smith by a head. That was over two miles at Kempton at the end of last month. The runner-up actually opposes on one pound worse terms, having scored subsequently. Owen Little has had just five career starts. I think there's more to come and I hope he can follow up here. So it's the 11.40 race at Lingfield, selection number 13, Owen Little. Dave, thanks so much. That was Tuesday, November the 30th. We will see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.